Well, this new uh, seating configuration is great. I feel very much like Moses. <laughs> part the chairs and I can walk right through the middle on dry ground. Uh, I would like to thank uh, Blair and Tom for going to pick them up yesterday in Burlington. And uh, I, I believe uh, the Sretz were here to help set them up. So this increases our capacity a little bit. Now we've got to get out there and share the good news of the gospel and fill up these extra chairs. So that's a good motivation. Uh, welcome to all of the visitors. I see a few uh, new faces today, and it's so great to have you here uh, worshiping with us. Eight years ago to the day, we got a call from Beginnings Family Services saying there's a little girl about to be born uh, somewhere around Christmas time. Were we interested? And uh, Angie and I said, yes, absolutely. We got a call three days later that said that she had been born the very same day that we were contacted. She was four pounds, three ounces. But on November 1st of that year, we were chosen to be her parents. And so today is Sela's birthday. I tell you that not to be totally self-indulgent. I'm sure she'll be glad to know that I mentioned her. Uh, but because we're in the middle of Romans 9, which is about election. And I remember thinking then, and I th thought about it again this morning, that uh, election is difficult for us to understand, except that's exactly the experience that my daughter went through when she was adopted. You see, we were all adopted by God, and we had no choice in the matter. He elected, he chose to adopt us, to make us a part of his family. And, and we didn't get to choose him, he chose us. This seems brutally unfair. What do you mean I don't get to choose God? What do, I, what do you mean that he chooses me? And what do you mean that he doesn't choose everyone? That's exactly what my daughter went through eight years ago. She didn't choose the circumstances of her birth. She didn't have a say in who got to adopt her. She was entirely in, in the care of other people. Up to, she was held to the decisions of other people, including my wife and myself. Now, I would like to think that her adoption into our family has been a blessing for her. I hope so. But what I can say with confidence is that our adoption into God's family is the ultimate blessing. So what if we don't get to choose? It's not a concept that we're unfamiliar with, but when it comes to salvation, we want the choice. None of us, by the way, chose to be conceived in the first place. None of us chose to be born where we were born. None of us chose the family that we were born into. None of us chose the family that we might be adopted into. I know there's some adopted people in this room, just like my daughter. There's so many things that we don't choose, and yet when it comes to salvation, we want the choice, which makes it so difficult when we come to chapters like Romans 9, where the Bible is very clear that we don't get to choose. God chooses. God adopts. God is in control. We are in the middle of the book of Romans, so just by way of quick review, and, and this is important because this whole concept of election, that is that God chooses some to be adopted into his family, God chooses some to be saved and not others, comes after eight chapters about the, the doctrines of the gospel, the doctrines of salvation. So that in Romans 1 through 8, we learn what the gospel is. In chapters 1 through 3, we were, we're reminded that God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and against all ungodliness because all of us have worshipped the creation. All of us has, have broken God's perfect laws. Therefore, God's justice requires him to be wrathful to condemn everyone from the outset. That's how the gospel begins. But then chapters 4 and 5 teach us about justification, that God sent forth His Son to live the perfect life that none of us were able to live. And then the great trade. God counts our sin against cross, uh, Christ as He hung on the cross, and He counts the righteousness of Jesus Christ to us if we have faith in him if we believe that he is God and man that came to live without sin to carry our sin in his body to take the punishment and the wrath that we deserve we have to acknowledge that we deserve wrath 
if we can believe those things, then we get his righteousness and he gets our wrath or the wrath that we deserve to be more accurate. That's justification. So our legal standing in the court of heaven shifts from guilty to righteous. That's justification. And then in chapters 6 and 7, we learn about sanctification. That, that It's more than just a positional transformation or positional change, but our entire nature is transformed. We become new creatures. We actually die with Jesus on the cross. It's a mystery. And then we are actually born again. The sin is cut out of our heart and nailed to the cross, and in its place we get a righteous heart that always desires righteousness, always desires holiness, always desires God. And we are made in our nature new people so that we begin to live different lives. We're not perfect. We're still wrapped in sinful tendencies. We call that the flesh. But at the core of who we are, we desire always righteousness. Because we're new, we're different. And then in Romans 8, we're told about glorification. That the end of this gospel project is that though we will die, we'll put our bodies in the ground, Jesus will come back, he will call for us from the grave, and our bodies will be resurrected in glory. Never to be destroyed again. We'll never get sick, we'll never get old, we'll never grow tired. And we'll never desire sin. We will never sin again because all of our sinful tendencies will have been eradicated and we will be made like Christ. And not only that, but he's going to make this universe glorious and he's going to put heaven and he's going to land it on earth and we're going to live with God in this universe forever. That's glory. Now at the end of that, before we get into chapters 12 through 16, which are the doctrines of right living, orthopraxy, we have these three chapters which are all, have always been difficult for the church. These are the doctrines of election, chapters 9, 10, and 11. And, and Paul, before he gets to, well, in light of this uh, great gospel, this is how you ought to live, he says first we have to deal with election. Election that God chooses some unto salvation. And so for three chapters we learn what that means. This is our third sermon in chapter 9, and so far this is the ground that we have uh, gone through. That God chooses groups, and God chooses individuals to be saved. So God chose Israel to be his elect nation, and he entered into covenant with them. And he said, I'm going to save the world through you. But then Paul continues, and he says, but not every Israelite has been saved. So he chooses groups, but he also chooses individuals within the group. And not every Jew will be saved unto eternal life, even though Israel is God's elect nation. And then Paul says, well, you must be wondering, is that even just? How can God choose the nation and not choose every member of the nation? How can God use the group and not choose to save every individual in the group? And last week we looked at that. Well, God will have mercy and compassion on whom he chooses. And God will harden those whom he chooses. So that he chooses the group and he chooses some from the group and not others and that's the way it is. That's what we learned last week. I want to uh, pick up there and I'm going to read the verses from last week and this week we're going to look at verses 19 through 24. Would you open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9? I'm going to read verses 14 through 24, and then I will exposit verses 19 through 24. Would you please stand? This is the Word of God. Romans 9, 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will. It depends not on human exertion but on God 
who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You'll say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us, us whom he has called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. The Word of God. Let's pray. Oh God, I, I pray for us. These are hard truths for us to understand, and if we understand them, they are hard truths for us to accept. I pray for us. Help us to see the glory in these truths, the, the, the beauty and the promise of election, that it depends not on our will. It depends not on our exertion. It doesn't depend on our works, our goodness, but on you because you choose to have mercy on some, even us. And you choose to have compassion on some, yes, even us. I pray if there's any here who have not yet responded to the gospel with faith, I pray that you would choose them today, that you would give them the faith that they need to cry out in faith and be saved. Thank you that you have adopted us, and I, I thank you that you have shown me in a deeper way what adoption entails through the makeup of my own family, and I thank you for my daughter and the eight years that you have blessed us with, and I pray that you would continue to bless her and reveal your gospel to her and to all the children of this church. Choose them. I plead with you. In your good and holy name, I ask these things. Amen. Please be seated. In verses 1 through 13, the point is really made that Paul begins his discussion about election by talking about the nation of Israel and how God elected the, the nation, but not every Israelite. And we really have to be disciplined until verse 24 to keep that as our focus. We are talking about the nation of Israel and how God chose that nation, but not every person in that nation. And if we can stay there, then these chapters will unfold more neatly for us. We won't cloud them uh, with, with ourselves. But when we get to verse 24, and that's how we'll end today, we'll see how the same principles apply for us. Now, last week, we, we talked about the fact that when, when God affirms that he has chosen the nation, but not every Israelite in the nation, the, the question that rises up in a Jewish heart is that that's not fair, that's not just. And we affirmed, you're right, it's not fair, but it is just. We're going to revisit that. We're going to give you some definitions because there's a lot of good questions about that over the last couple of weeks. But let us begin with Paul's question. He says, is there injustice on God's part? That's verse 14. He says, no, because God reserves the right to show mercy and compassion on whomever he wills. And last week, we, we said, well, that's not fair. That's true. Mercy and compassion is not fair, but it's just. How is it just? Well, that's where the cross is really important. It would not be just for God to choose some and not others if God didn't punish the sins of all 
to whom he's going to show mercy and compassion, if he didn't punish their sins on the cross, then he's not being just. God must punish your sin. He must punish my sin because God is a God of justice. We have to acknowledge that fact. And this is why the world hates the gospel. How dare you say that there is a God who made me that must punish me because I have sinned against him that just is not the word, that's not the message that the world wants to hear. But that's the beginning of the gospel. And God is a God of justice. He is a good God, which means he cannot tolerate anything that is not good. He must punish evil. We have all sinned. We have all fallen short of God's standard. He must judge us all. So you have two choices. Either get to the end of your life, stand at the judgment seat of God, and plead your case before the judge of the universe. If you choose that option, you will be found guilty, and you will be condemned for your own sin because God is a God of justice. There's a second option. This is this is a review, I suppose, but it's really important if we're going to understand election. The second option is not to ask God not to be just, but say, God, would you punish my sins in Jesus on the cross? And God says, yes. If you give your sin to Jesus, I will punish you on the cross. And so we stand there, and God can be unfair with us. That is, he will not execute justice against us at the last judgment because he's already been just with us at the cross. That, that underpins election, which is why Paul doesn't talk about election until chapter 9. So a word about fairness and justice to sort of help you to understand what I've just said. We need to define these terms perhaps more than I did the last couple of weeks. What does it mean to be fair? Because remember, I'm saying that election is not fair, but election is just. Election is choosing some for salvation and not others. How is that fair? Uh, fair not fair, but it is just. Well, fair, what does it mean to be fair? To be fair is to treat everyone the same. That's fairness. Everyone is treated the same. Same rules for everyone. That's fairness. So election is not fair because not everyone receives God's mercy and compassion. God could have, I suppose, chosen to be just and fair. It's a doctrine called universalism where he punishes everyone's sin on the cross and then cho chooses to be fair and apply the cross to every life that has ever lived, but God chose not to do that. The Bible's clear about that. He's not going to save everyone. Therefore, God is not fair. He is not treating us all the same. Some people get covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, and other people do not. So he doesn't treat everyone the same. Israel and Moses received God's unfair mercy and compassion. They were no better than Pharaoh and the Israelites, but God chose to give them mercy and compassion. And he chose to give Pharaoh and Egypt justice. That's from last week. So what's justice then? Justice is to reward or punish each person based on individual merit. So justice says if you do good, then you will be rewarded. You will be blessed. If you do evil, you will be cursed. You will be punished. You will be condemned. That's justice. Justice says do what is right and you will be approved. Do what is wrong and you will be condemned. So election is just. There is no innocent person that is going to be condemned by God in the final judgment. There is no one that can say, God, you are being unjust with me. You have unrightly judged me guilty because everyone will be proven guilty if they are found to be guilty. Therefore, election is not unjust. That's a double negative. But election is not unjust because no one is unjustly punished. So Pharaoh in Egypt received God's merited punishment. God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but 
we also read in Exodus that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And one way of understanding that is that God just allowed. By, what does it mean that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? Well, God allowed Pharaoh to harden his heart. He didn't soften his heart. He didn't exercise mercy and compassion. And in that sense, he hardened Pharaoh's heart. Therefore, although all are guilty and deserving of punishment, the doctrine of election states that God chooses to unfairly have mercy and compassion on some while simultaneously upholding the justice of God. That's why we, the only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ, because God, the cross is where the love and the justice of God meet. The justice of God, that God punishes all of our sins. If you're, if you're in Christ, if you put your faith in him, then your sin is punished. That's justice, love, that he sent his sinless, spotless, righteous son, the eternal son of God, to come and to bear the wrath that you deserve. That's love. Love and justice meet at the cross. That's what you have to believe in order to be saved. Now this then brings Paul to another question. Verse 19. Take a look at it. Well, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? That's fine. Okay, let's say that we can understand this fairness and justice, that, that God has reserves the right to be unfairly merciful and compassionate on some. But then you'll say, well, why does he find fault? It, I can't resist his mercy. I can't resist his compassion. And everyone else, because they're totally depraved, they will never seek after God. That's a, a gospel truth from Romans 3. So how can God find fault if, if no one can resist God's will? And, and the force of the question can be seen if you go back to verse 18. Take a look at it. So then... God has mercy on whomever he wills, and God hardens whomever he wills. God is the active agent here. And if you go to Ephesians chapter 1, we get even more information that God made this decision before he said, let there be light. So before he creates the universe, he looks down all the way into the eternal future, and he says, I choose some and not others. Well then... Why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? If it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who wills to have mercy on some, why does God find fault with those who do not choose him? In fact, they cannot choose him. What's Paul's answer? Verse 20. But who are you Oh man, to answer back to God. It's, it's a sobering rebuke. We're not used to it. No one in Canada talks this way. Who are you to talk back to God? Like, that's just not in our regular parlance in, in Tim Hortons or even in Starbucks. We, we don't talk about the fact that God is so much greater, so much higher, so much more above us. We put ourselves in a seat of judgment over God, and we tell God how he should behave. So it's shocking when we come to this, and we say, well, hold on a minute. Put yourself in the right place. You are not God. God is God, and, and you certainly are not. And who are you to tell God what he should do. But I will admit, it's shocking to read, to absorb, and to accept. Now Paul here moves on and he gives us an illustration to make the point. The real problem with this illustration is that it's so clear. It's not hard to understand. What I'm about to tell you is not hard for you to understand, but I, it will be hard to accept. And this is where we talked about three weeks ago, or a couple of weeks ago, I said there's two problems with election. It's hard to understand, and if you do understand it, it's hard to emotionally embrace. And I said we have all the patience in the world if you're struggling to understand it, and we have all the patience in the world if you're struggling to embrace this emotionally. So I just want to reiterate that. Take your time. Come and talk to us. I, I don't want to lay this down with a heavy hammer, but, but my job here is not to write the Bible. My job is to, 
to reveal and to teach what the Bible says. This is what it says. This is the illustration. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Continuing in verse 20. Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? It's not a hard illustration, is it? So let's say I'm a a potter. I go, I choose whether I'm going to dig the clay out of the ground or I'm going to go to the market and buy the clay. I choose the lump of clay. I bring it home to my workshop and I then can separate out the clay however I want. And I can say, you know, I really only need one set of fine dishes for special occasions, but I'm going to make myself two copies or two two, uh, series of just regular dishes. I'm going to make them different. I'm going to spend five times as much time on the fine china, and I'm just going to sort of whip up these these casual dishware because I I need something to eat on tonight, tomorrow, and the next day. Is anyone going to say to me that I don't have the right to do that? Should the clay, and this is at the level of ridiculous, cry out to me, why are you making me for regular use? No, like the clay would never do that. And there's nothing intrinsically better about the lump of clay or the portion of the lump of clay that I make into fine china. I choose to use the same lump for different purposes. If I decided, you know what, after I made it all, I have, I have my fine china set, and then I have my casual set, and then I had the first, the first set that I, that I made, and I'm like, you know what, I don't even like it, I'm going to smash it. Do I have the right to do that? I do have the right to do that as the molder because I made it. I purchased it. I made it. And I can do with it whatever I want. That's the illustration. That's not hard to understand. Now, take it a step further. I didn't, as the potter, actually make the clay. But imagine if I did. If ma- imagine if not only am I the potter, but I am the creator of the mud itself. They, do I not have the right to do what I want with that? And then that, that's what Paul is saying. When we tell God that he cannot choose some and not others, we are about as ridiculous on the logical level, not emotionally, but on the logical level, uh, we're about as ridiculous as Clay saying, why did you make me like this? Whether you're the fine china or you're the regular use dishware, but neither set has the right to say to the maker, why did you make me like this? Now, what I find really helpful at this point is to remind ourselves, which I already have, of the context. Paul is trying to explain first before he gets into the church and Israel and Gentiles and Jews and all the way that that works out, he's still just talking about Israel. So the one lump of clay that the potter chooses is the nation of Israel. He chooses the nation of Israel. That's the one lump. And of this one lump, he chooses to save unto eternal salvation some Israelites and not others. That's what Paul is saying explicitly here. He's not talking about you and me just yet. He's not talking about Gentiles. He's not talking about the relationship of the church with the, na- uh, with the nation of Israel. He's talking about how can God choose the nation, right, to elect a group, but not choose every individual in that nation the fine china versus the common dishware. So keep that straight. And as I've said, I think every week, and I'll probably say it every week, these chapters get misinterpreted because we crowd them with things that Paul's not talking about. He's not talking about the church just yet. But Paul then applies this illustration in verses 22 and 23. Take a look at it. What if God... Desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Zoom out again, not that hard to understand. The what if is not a, you know, maybe this is what God was thinking. This is actually what God was thinking. This is a rhetorical question. The answer is, this is what God was doing. In choosing the nation of Israel and choosing some Israelites but not all Israelites, God is 
desiring to make known his power and to show his wrath, and he's going to endure with much patience many Israelites that he is prepared for destruction. Why would he do this? Well, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So what we learn here is that there's, God is doing what he is doing for the purpose of his fine china. He wants to establish a contrast a contrast of justice and fairness. He, he wants those who are unfairly uh, chosen for mercy and compassion to see that they ought to have been treated this way. They ought to have received justice, but they didn't. Now, you might be saying, well, that's not right of a good God. That's not right of a loving God. But who are you, O oh man, O oh woman, to answer back to God? And what we have to reckon with is God as he reveals himself, not the God as we want to create him in our image. We, we do not have the right to make God in our image. Well, I really wish God was more like this. I really wish God was more like that. We don't have that right. All we can do is to reckon with the God who is. I am who I am, says God. And God has revealed himself to us. And we do not tamper with that self-revelation. We wrestle with it. I'm not, I'm not asking you not to wrestle with this. But we don't write the Bible. We just wrestle with it. That's what Israel means, to wrestle with God. Now, why would God do this? He's going to prepare some for eternal glory. He's going to prepare some for eternal condemnation. Why would God do this? Paul here gives us three reasons. First reason, verse 22, God desires to show his wrath. That's not easy for us to accept. On some level, God desires, he wills. This is his choice. He wants to showcase his wrath. How is he going to do that? He's going to do that by condemning some people. Justly. Remember, justly. Number two, he desires to make known his power. Verse 22. He wants the world to see how powerful he is. He wants the world to see how great he is. He has the power over eternal life and eternal death. And we would deny him that power, wouldn't we? But he, he desires, he wills to make known the fact that he wields that kind of power over you and me. And then the third reason in verse 23, he desires to make known the riches of his glory to the vessels of mercy, to the Israelites that he chooses for eternal salvation, he wants them to know just how rich that mercy is. He wants them not to take it for granted. He wants them to say, wow, this is, this is incalculable. The, the, the riches of your mercy and kindness towards me, I cannot calculate, I cannot fathom them because when I look at what I deserve, I cannot believe that I am receiving what I am receiving. Eternal life, resurrection from the dead, eternal glory, a position higher than the angels. Those are the three reasons that we get here that the doctrine of election is in effect. This is why God is choosing to act this way so now, and this will take us to the end of this morning, I want to ask why. Why would God want to do these things? It's one thing to say that God desires to show his wrath. God desires to make known his power. God desires to make known the riches of his glory to those whom he chooses to save. Uh, but it's a, quite another thing to say why. And I think when we wrestle with this, a lot of our wrestling is around this why question. I can't promise that I'm going to resolve all the emotional tension here for you, but let me just open the door, for, for introduce you to, to some reasons that God is choosing to do this. The Bible says that God is a God of love. We affirm that. God is love, 1 John. We love him because he first loved us. 
See what love the Father has with, uh, that He would call us children of God. And so we are. There's so many places that we could go in the Bible that, to affirm that God is love. But we have shallowed out what love is. We've turned it into uh, an American romantic comedy. God is not an American romantic comedy. He's got deep love. Nevertheless, if God is a God of love, why would this God of love desire to show his wrath? Just seem, doesn't that seem counterintuitive? God, show me your love. Don't show me your wrath. Well, the Bible in many places, and I can just think of go back to the first half of Romans 3, makes this point really clear that God desires and God wills to judge and to condemn sinners because in so doing, there's a contrast that is made between the sinner that he is declaring to be guilty and himself. He is, by declaring that one, that sinner, to be a guilty sinner, he is showcasing his righteousness and his goodness. There's a contrast between the evil of the sin and the sinner and the goodness and the righteousness of the God who judges it. And, and if we think long and hard about this, we do want a God who hates sin. We do want a God who takes the pedophiles and declares them to be guilty and evil. We do want a God who hates the war all around the world. We do want a God who looks at the rich people who are enslaving the poor people and say, that's not right! Don't we? So deep down, we want it. We want a God that looks at evil and calls it for what it is. That's evil, and I judge it. It's wrong. And if you say you don't want that, then what you're actually embracing is a world of sin and chaos and corruption. You're saying you don't care about the genocides all around the world. You don't care about uh, sex trafficking. You don't care about child poverty. You don't care about, I'm not saying you don't care, but we just have to know what we're asking for when we ask God not to be good, when we ask God not to be just, when we ask God not to deal with our sin problem. This just introduces the greater need for us to go out into the world and to say, look at the cross, because that's where the justice and the love of God meet. I thought you said that God was a God of love, but now you're telling me he's a God of justice? Yes, precisely, because of the cross. And that, that offer is open to everyone, which is why Jesus, who died on the cross, though he had no sin, to purchase us, to pay for our sin, he says, I want you to go out into the world and let everyone know that there is an offer of love on the table. Because justice is coming. Are you ready for it? The only way to be ready for justice that is coming is to have already received justice that has come. That's the cross. You either will be judged and found guilty at the end of your life, or you will voluntarily declare yourself to be guilty and join Jesus on the cross. Those are your two options. We want a God who hates sin. We want a God who is wrathful against the evil in our world. We do. We do. Even non-believers want that because they cry uh, out legitimately and authentically for justice all the time and they don't realize that what they're asking for would put them in the very path of the wrath of God. And that's our job, to go out there not to condemn the world, but to be ministers of reconciliation, to be ambassadors of God's justification and sanctification, to be the people of the cross and to take the risk, to take the cross to our loved ones who will hate us for telling them that there is a way to get out from under the wrath of God. And we do it because we love them. Because God loves them. 
Second question, why would God desire to make known his power? Is he an egomaniac? doesn't seem right that you know God has all this power does he need to flaunt it actually God making known his power is exactly what we need it is for our eternal good that God will showcase his power how is that well for for those of us who are vessels of mercy The power of God being showcased in judgment against sinners is an eternal reminder that puts us in our right place under God. You see, this is how we got into this problem in the first place. In the angelic realm, Satan would not recognize God's power. And Satan wanted to put himself above God. And Satan says, no, I will not stay in my God-ordained created order. I will not allow God to be my head, to be above me, to be my authority. I want his position. I want to put myself above him. And that's exactly what happened in the garden, too, with Adam and Eve. When the serpent, which is Satan, went to Adam and whispered in his ear, do you think it's right that God is in control? Do you think it's right that God has more power than you? You could be like him. You could take his place. You could be your own God if you just take that fruit. Take it and you can be like God. And, and really the implication was you can, you can put yourself above God. You don't need to, to find yourself underneath the power and the authority of God. And so the fall of the angelic realm and the fall of the human realm are, are all based on this desire for power that we God's creatures took upon ourselves to grasp so God says well there will come a time where I will in no uncertain terms establish who has the power and that's for our creaturely good it is for our creaturely good that we will at the final judgment recognize once and for all that God is God and we are not And look what God, who is God, all-powerful, all-knowing, totally righteous does with those who seek to put themselves above him. The great evil in all of reality is when the creature, that's us, seeks power that is greater than our creator. Judging rebellious sinners writes this wrong by making all creation see that God alone is the supreme being in all reality. Third question, why would God desire to make known the riches of his glory to the vessels of mercy? So those first two talk about the negative side of election, right? We, 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 learn, about, we learn about the fact that God is going to condemn some and he has his reasons But the third one can be even harder because we can have survivor's guilt. It's not right that I should receive all this mercy and compassion and then people that I love are not receiving the same mercy and the same compassion. Why would God desire to make known the riches of His glory to the vessels of of mercy? I don't want God to do that. I, I, I could say that. I don't want God to condemn other people so that I will know how good I have it. I, that's not what I want. So why would God do that? Why would God force me into that position to look at other people who don't have it as good as I have it? And so this is hard for us. But, and here's the hard truth, if God did not destroy some people with his wrath, we would not be able to understand the riches of the grace that we have been given. God knows And the Bible tells us that the only way for God to communicate to us what he has done for us is to condemn some. It's not easy. Because we see in those who are condemned what we actually deserve. We see if justice had fallen on me instead of on Christ on the cross in my place, if Jesus hadn't opened up an opportunity for God to be unfair with me, 
positively, that would be me. But by the grace of God, there am I. But that's God's greatest desire to communicate to us what he has done for us. And look to the extent that he has gone to purchase us. He wants us to know what Jesus endured for our sake. He wants us to praise Jesus maximally. And we will not, in fact, we cannot worship and praise Jesus maximally until we see just what it is that he saved us from, the wrath of God. Now, I said that this is all about Israel and Israelites, and that's true, and I've already bled into the fact that this is also about us. But up until verse 23, Paul's been talking about the fact that God has elected Israel, but he has not elected every Israelite. And now, in verse 24, he's going to say these very principles that we've been discussing about Israel and Israelites, corporate election and individual election, applies to Gentiles also. Take a look at verse 24. Even us, whom he has called, that is, so better, better back up in verse 23. He wants to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, that is, Israelites, that he has chosen from the elect nation of Israel, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. He's going to communicate that by condemning other Israelites. Even us, whom he has called, that is, it is, it is for us, the elect individuals, says Paul, that God is condemning other individuals. But it's not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. That is, God elected Israel to be his nation. He chose some Israelites to receive mercy and compassion. And at where we're going in the next couple of weeks, he has chosen Gentiles who are not even a part of the elect group. And he's grafted us into the elect group as elect individuals. So even though not every Israelite they're a part of the elect nation. Not every Israelite gets to enjoy individual election. There are some, like us, Gentiles, who have been individually chosen, although Canada was never chosen, England was never chosen. There's no other nation under earth in the history of the world that was ever chosen the way Israel was chosen. But we who are from different nations have been individually elected to be adopted into the commonwealth of Israel as elect individuals. Oh, the mercy of and grace of God. I mean, God could have said, I'm going to pick a group and I'm going to choose some in that group and not others in that group and everyone else is destined to condemnation. But he didn't. He chose some of us to receive the blessings given to elect Israelites. It's an amazing thing that God has done for us. And we know of some Old Testament examples of Gentiles that are grafted into the commonwealth of Israel. Let me just give you three women. Uh, Tamar, who conceived Perez by Judah. She wasn't from Israel, and yet she's elect. Ruth, who is a Moabite and the grandmother of David. Great-grandmother, I suppose. She's a Moabite, and yet she's elect. Rahab, who is from Jericho. She was a, a practicing prostitute. And God chose her, individually elected her for salvation, even though the elect nation that was coming in destroyed the city that she was living in and all of the people there except for her and her family. And so from the very beginning, God has been communicating this inclusion of Gentiles. And I love Rahab because we, like her, are spiritually adulterous. We, we spiritually have prostituted ourselves after other gods and other philosophies and other worldviews, but that doesn't matter. It's not about being good enough. It's not about living a good life. It's not about being moral. It, it's not about doing more good than bad. It, you can be a practicing prostitute in Jericho, and God can individually elect you for salvation. And so were some of we. We 
have received individually election, not because there's anything more likable in us, but because God has chosen to show mercy and compassion. And so to close, we hear the great anthem that we will sing at the end of the age to Jesus who has purchased us to be his brothers and sisters. Worthy are you, O King Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and it is by your blood that you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language, every people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they, that is we, shall reign upon the earth. And the four living creatures, these angelic beings that are circling the throne of God, cried out, Amen and Amen. And the 24 elders and all of the saints in heaven fell down before Jesus, and we with them, and cried out, Amen and Amen. Because it's not about us choosing God, it's about God adopting us. He chooses on whom He will have mercy. He chooses on whom He will have compassion. If he has exercised his mercy and compassion on you, worship him. We'll look more at God's election of Gentiles in the weeks to come. Let's pray. Oh God, this is not easy. We lose ourselves in this doctrine and we admit that we, we do want to cry out to you and say, why are you making us this way? And yet you have made us this way. I pray that you would sovereignly choose to save those whom we love. Our family and friends, our co-workers, our neighbors. Uh, We pray for our leaders, our mayor and the city council and our premier in Queen's Park, our prime minister in Parliament of Canada. Lord, we pray for strangers that we don't know. Please be merciful and compassionate with many and use us to be the means by which you bring the gospel to the doorstep of so many houses and I pray that they, like Joshua, would cry out, as for us, we will serve the Lord. Oh God, help us. Thank you for adopting us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.